0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. The great theologian Augustine of Hippo once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. When we think of the Messianic prophecies from this perspective, we see that the Old Testament whispers to us about the coming of the Messiah. Join us during our Advent sermon series titled Rumors of the Messiah where we confirm the whispered prophecies of the Old Testament that told of the birth, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Uh, My name is Nick Wyrens. I serve as the associate pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Um, Whether you've been here a thousand Sundays or this is your first, we're thankful that you're here celebrating um, the beginning of Advent with us. Um, So as we've talked about today, marks the first Sunday in Advent with Advent, Advent, the word simply means arriving, arrival. Um, Advent, for those who don't know, is an observed period of time in the church calendar from now until Christmas Day. Advent, in many ways, is a, a season of waiting. It's observed in the church to cultivate our awareness of God's actions, past, present, and future. In Advent, what we often do is we try to put ourselves back into the story of Christ's first coming. Doing so, it helps us feel all the longings that God's people felt as they waited for the coming King, for the Messiah to be born. As we put ourselves back in the story of Christ's first coming, it then actually heightens our current anticipation of his second coming, when Christ's kingdom will fully reign on earth as it is in heaven. So this season creates in us a renewed sense of hope, anticipation, one that longs for the ultimate fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, the promises of the wolf lying down with the lamb, of, of death being swallowed up, and of every tear being wiped away. So in this way, Advent highlights for us the larger story of God's redemptive plan. Christ has come. Yes, we celebrate that in Advent, but Christ will come again. We long for that in Advent. So, while we remember Israel's waiting and and hoping, and we give thanks for Christ's birth, we also find ourselves in a season that helps us to anticipate his second coming again. So, before we start our new sermon series um, this week for for Advent, uh, I want to start with a word of prayer for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the the promised Messiah, that you are the the conquering king that Israel longed for for millennia. We thank you for the season of Advent, that in it, Jesus, we can put ourselves back in the story, that we can remember what it felt like to long for your birth, and then we can celebrate that, but we can also remember that we still long for you to come again. Pray this morning, God, that as we open your word together, as we look at your scriptures, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, help us to see and understand the gospel afresh in new ways. We ask that you would speak to us this morning, God, and help us to hear your word. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So this new sermon series that we're embarking on today is called The Rumors of the Messiah. The Rumors of the Messiah. Now, these rumors, they're, they're not quite like the rumors you may find in like, Access Hollywood, like so-and-so is dating so-and-so, and this guy's playing this role in that movie, or uh, the coaching carousel rumors that are fired up on ESPN today, right? Like, where's Mark Stoops going to go? I don't know. Lincoln Riley, who knows, right? There's rumors spreading about. Now, The Rumors of the Messiah... <laughs> There are not so much rumors, maybe murmurs, uh, is, a, is a better word, right? Because rumors, those kind of rumors, right, can sometimes hit or miss. But what we'll see over the next few weeks is that the rumors of the Messiah really could be referred to as promises. But when did these rumors start? When did they begin? When did the rumor mill of the Messiah start churning on the Israelite message boards? Well, the rumors of Jesus, the promised Messiah, are as old as sin itself. In one of the saddest moments of Scripture that we looked at last week, when God's crowning creation, mankind, rebelled against Him, we see a slight glint of hope. We see the promise of a seed, a descendant who will conquer, be victorious. This is where the rumors of the Messiah begin in Genesis 3.15. Our passage today is often referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, the Proto-Evangelium, or in other words, the first gospel. It feels really early, but that's beautiful, a beautiful picture of our gracious God that as soon as the fall happens, we see the first gospel on display. Now remember, this, this comes off the tail of uh, what we looked at last week in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. It was the tragic fall of humanity, and it remains truly tragic, right? The, the once perfect harmony and unity we shared with God is now completely broken and distorted. But with tragedy, there often comes Beauty. With death, there often comes life. You see, it's in the cursing of of the serpent, Satan, in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19, that we also see blessing inextricably bound up with it, woven together. It's in the, the despair of the fall that we see the hope of salvation, if even for a moment. The old English preacher Charles Spurgeon, uh, he poetically highlights the beauty of this proto evangelion, the very first gospel that we see in our passage today. He says, They, the, the rumors of the Messiah, right, they may not have been fully understood by those who first heard them, right? Adam and Eve, maybe in their, and they would not have fully understood the promises or the rumors that they were hearing. But to us, the church now, they are now full of light. The text, Genesis 3.15, at first looks like a flint, hard and cold, and I think this is so beautiful, but sparks fly from it plentifully. For hidden fires of infinite love and grace lie concealed within. Over this promise of a gracious God, we ought to exceedingly rejoice By God's grace in our passage today, we we will see the sparks of of infinite love and grace fly from what seems to be a cold, hard, and dark passage of Scripture. So this morning, if if you'll allow me, we'll we'll see three three rumors. First, the rumors of war. Second, the rumors of suffering. And third, the rumors of victory. If you're a, a notes person, you can follow along in your bulletin. The outline should be in there. But so first, we see the rumors of war, right? In, in this passage, there, there are glimpses of both hope and salvation. There's blessing shining through cursing. But this in no way means that God is soft or he's easy on sin, right? There's very much judgment in this passage. So to back us up a little bit and read Genesis 3.15 in its context, the verse before, it's, it shows us how severe this judgment is, right? Look at uh, Genesis 3.14-15 through 15 with me. It says, So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, which note that that's interesting already, right? Adam and Eve rebelled, but uh, the, the, the blame is cast on, on this, uh, the serpent, ultimately. He says, because you have done this, you are cursed. You, the serpent, are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility or enmity, as some translations say, between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So God pronounces judgment on the serpent, on Satan. He curses him. And notice here that it's the serpent that is cursed, right? Adam and Eve in the following verses, they experience judgment from God, but they don't experience a curse on them, right? If you read the verses following, there's a curse on the land because of what they did. There's a curse on childbirth and labor pains because of what they did. But the curse is not laid upon Adam and Eve. Do you see that? It's laid upon the serpent, Satan. And we see that in this, there's a declaration of war. Henceforth, there's a battle that will take place for the rest of human history between the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, the literal word here in the Hebrew that's used is seed, right? And it's used in different ways throughout Scripture. It can be an individual reality, right? Talking about one descendant, one person. Or it can be a corporate reality, right? It can talk about a lineage, those that follow the descendants. And I think the translation that we read today, uh, I think does a really good job using the the word offspring, right? Because in the same way, offspring can be an individual reality, but it can be a corporate reality, right? We don't talk about offsprings, like that doesn't, it's a mouthful, right? It's not an actual word. It's offspring or offspring, right? It's like, uh, what's a a plural? Deer and deer, right? It's like one's individual deer, multiple deer, right? Same thing. Right? So offspring, it's the same, same, same way that the, the Hebrew word is used in um, using the word seed. So, so God says that there's enmity, right? You are, these people will now be at war with each other, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And this war is one that we see all throughout Scripture, all throughout the history of God's people, right? In, in the very next chapter of Scripture, Genesis 4, we see Abel, the seed of the woman, is slaughtered by his brother Cain, who is referred to as the seed of the serpent, <laughs> You see that. Genesis 21, right? The the conflict between the mothers of Ishmael and Isaac can be seen there as an enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, or the offspring of the woman. Fast forward to Exodus 1, right? There's an attempt to destroy all of Israel's male descendants. It's an act of warfare from the seed of the serpent on the seed of the woman. The the whole book of Esther, right? it's, It's about a seed of the serpent, Haman, Going, going after nothing short of genocide, trying to snuff out the lineage, the seed of the woman. Then fast forward through this huge battle that spans millennium to Matthew 1, right? Herod, we know in, in the, the nativity story, Herod tries to kill all the newborns when he receives the word of the promised seed to come. The seed of the serpent is still trying to take the seed of the woman and even in Jesus' day, right, uh, to start his ministry, Matthew 3, John the Baptist, he refers to the the Pharisees and Sadducees, the the religious leaders of his day, as brood of vipers. Like, that's the insult he gives him, right? Brood of vipers, offspring of serpents. (laughs) Do y'all hear that? This is the seed of the serpent, again, coming against the seed of the woman. And friends, this this war, it still rages on. This isn't something, even though Christ has come, this isn't something that has just stopped. The war rages on. That's why also in this passage we see rumors of suffering. If you look with me at verse 15 again, it says, He, um, the, the offspring of the woman, will strike your head, the head of the serpent, and you, the serpent, will strike his heel. The seed of the woman will, will strike or crush, as some translations say, the head of the serpent. But the serpent will, will land some blows as he goes down swinging, right? He will strike the heel of the offspring. That's a promise. These rumors about the offspring of the woman suffering are repeated all throughout Scripture, but most notably, we see them in the book of Isaiah. If you look at Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 6 with me, says, "'The Lord God has opened my ear, "'and I was not rebellious.'" This is the suffering servant speaking. "'I did not turn back. "'I gave my back to those who beat me, "'and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. "'I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting.'" Then again, we see in Isaiah 53, more rumors of suffering. We see, uh, it says, yet he himself, right, the promised seed, the, the offspring of the woman, he himself borne our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we... Are healed by his wounds. Church, the the war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent is a costly war. It involves suffering. But what's beautiful is it it doesn't doesn't involve defeat, right? (laughs) Paul says later in in Corinthians that we're pressed, but we're not crushed. (laughs) We're overwhelmed, but we're not in despair. I think it's important as we keep in mind this this, uh, double meaning, right, this individuality and this corporate reality of the word offspring, the offspring of the woman. It's important to remember that as the Messiah, the, the individual offspring was promised to suffer, so we too, the corporate offspring in the lineage of the promised one, will suffer in this life. We see throughout history that God's people are not immune from pain. And hardship once they experience redemption. They don't just walk an aisle and say a prayer and then suffering is gone. That's not how it works. And it's never been that way since Genesis 3. <laughs> Suffering is promised here in this passage in Genesis 3.15, and it's promised again by the suffering servant himself, right? He tells us later in John 16.33, talking to his disciples, he said, I have told you these things so that in me, in Christ, you may have peace. Why? Because you will have suffering in this world, is what he says. It's a promise. And we forget this often. We forget the fact that we will suffer because of the fact that we're in the family line now. For those who are part of God's family, we we now find ourselves placed directly in this war, right? It's like if you're born a Hatfield or a McCoy, you're automatically in this historic battle between each other, right? Just based on your, your birth. Same is true for those who are followers of Christ Jesus. When we are born again, right, born of the Spirit... We enter into this cosmic battle. Simply a part of being in God's family. We all know going through suffering is hard. Frankly, it can be overwhelming. But by God's grace, we're not without hope. Right? Even in Genesis 3.15, there's blessing bound up with curse. We see rumors of victory even then. look one more time at our our text. It says in Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility or enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The the striking of the head of the serpent is not just like some headbutt or, you know, like a body check or something like that, right? It's a death blow, right? It's a final victorious death blow. Uh. Now, I, I hate scary movies. Anyone like scary movies? You're crazy, 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 crazy. Okay, scary movies. Like, it's like, why, do I, why would I want to be scared? I'm just kidding. You guys aren't crazy. But I do not like scary movies, okay? So I have not seen a lot. But of the few scary movies that I have seen, there's one thing that I've learned. You have to make sure that the bad guy is, like, really, really dead, right? Like, you have to. Right, I think there's like 30 iterations of the Nightmare on Elm Street. It's because they haven't done the hard work of like making sure the guy's dead. Right? It's like, well, you know, we we hit his knees and let's go like wait in this scary car now for a little bit, or let's go walk in this forest and see if there's help out there. I don't know, but you, you like you have to make sure that he's eliminated. Right? Like that's one lesson I've learned in scary movies. Friends, th- this rumor of, of victory that we see here in Genesis three fifteen, it, it's not like Jesus is tri- trifling around. Right? It's not like the promised seed is just like kind of putting up with, with the serpent, right? It's not a yin and yang thing where it's like, well, good triumphs for a little bit, but then uh, evil wins again, right? It's like, this is a victorious death blow that is promised. The promised seed, the victorious one, is Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's what Advent means, the arriving of the conquering king. He's the one that Israel longed for as they waited for these rumors of victory to come true. In Colossians 2, uh, following the Christ hymn in Colossians 1, which is just an amazing passage of Scripture, we see just how much Jesus has accomplished for his people. It says, and when you were dead in trespasses, right? Or as Ephesians says, when you were enemies, right? When you were a part of the, the line of the serpents, the offspring of the serpent. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, Christ Jesus, made you alive with him and forgave all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt. It's gone with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Now hear this, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now in our materialistic like western minds, right, we read rulers and authorities and we think like yeah, Jesus disarmed the governmental leaders like, that are keeping me down. It's like, no, 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 friends. This is a spiritual reality, right? We don't know what to do with this, right? When Jesus disarmed like, the demons, it's like, what? Like, that's weird. Yeah, but if you don't have a cosmic king, <laughs> like, what are you going to do against the cosmic realities, right, or the cosmic war that's being fought? Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers is how another translation says it. The, the spiritual realm, the, the, the really, really like offspring of the serpents. He's not just victorious over sin and death, but over Satan himself. The promise that we see in Genesis 3.15 is that he will crush the head of the serpent. He will give a final death blow to the, to, to the ruler of the air, as it says in Ephesians. Friends, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ has changed everything. It, it, it shows that these rumors of Jesus that we see all throughout the Old Testament, they're not just rumors, but really they're promises of the Messiah. Charles Spurgeon, again, he writes, It is broken next in this way that the guilt of sin is gone. The great power of the serpent lies in unpardoned sin. Do you see that? If you don't have anything to do with your sin, that's where Satan's power is greatest, is what he's saying. He cries, the serpent, I have made you guilty. I brought you under the curse. No, say we, we are delivered from the curse and are now blessed. For it is written, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. We are no longer guilty for who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, to the offspring of the woman. Since Christ was justified, who is he that condemns? And hear this, friends, the final death blow, if you will. Here is a swinging blow for the old dragon's head such as he will never recover. Friends, this is what Advent is celebrating, the the arrival of the conquering king. When we say it's not a rumor, (laughs) the rumor of victory is not a rumor, it's a truth, it's a promise. But as I said earlier, we're still in this weird liminal, which means in between space, right? Theologians call it the already, not yet, where, where God's kingdom has come, but it's not fully here yet. And don't you know that the gospel, right, when we talk about the gospel or the good news, the idea of the gospel back way in the, way, way, way back in the day when you had like real wars going on, it was a pronouncement that we were victorious, right? So people would run out from the victory battle site and then go spread the news that we were victorious. That's what we're waiting for, right? We're waiting for the good news to continue to go forth, that the king has won. It's done. He is victorious, friends. But we're still in that in-between time, right? Christ has come. Yes, he's conquered. But we're waiting for him to, to deal the final, final death blow of Satan right? If you want some some crazy seed of the serpent, seed of the woman war, go look at Revelation 12 and 13. I didn't talk about it because I don't know what it means. It's a little, little nutso, right? But it's a promise, right? Like, don't, don't try and go and interpret it like against the stars, right? Like that's like, no, just read it for what it is. It's a war. It's a cosmic battle going on. What's beautiful, I, I'd never caught this before, right? Because like sometimes you're just like, well, it's hard to read about somebody crushing somebody else's head and For us, we don't really think about it like this. But the Apostle Paul, right, in the book of Romans, right, he's written this beautiful, eloquent, like, theological book that talks about, like, what Christ has done for us and gives great theology and then great praxis to go with it. And then he's ending here, right? This is, like, one of his ending notes. Romans 16, verse 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's Genesis 3.15, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Paul's saying to the Romans, he's like, yeah, like you're literally being persecuted right now, right? You're you're in under Roman rule, like you're being pushed against, pressed, right? as, As Paul says, but you're not crushed. Why? Because you have a hope. Though God's victory is won, the kingdom is still advancing. And one day soon, Paul is saying the God of peace will crush Satan's head completely. He will be victorious, ending the suffering and ending the war. Friends, every week when we gather together, uh, we partake in a meal called communion. It's one that celebrates this in-between stage, right, where we celebrate that Christ has come. He's accomplished, uh, he's accomplished our salvation on our behalf, right? He nailed our iniquities and our debt to the cross. It's so a looking back to that, but it's also a looking forward. A longing to when we will have a, a peaceful meal with the Lamb. We'll be ushered in with the conquering king and celebrating the coming of his kingdom in completion. Today as we partake uh, this meal... Called Communion. If you want to participate, um, there's individual elements in the pew backs in front of you. This meal is for Christians. Not, we're not trying to exclude you, but uh, this meal is for those who are about the reality of Christ, who have committed to, uh, to, um, to all that He's done for us and accomplished for us. Um, as Jesus was eating on the night that He was betrayed, He was eating with His disciples and He broke bread. He blessed it. He gave it to His disciples and He said, Take and eat. This is my body. Let's take and eat the bread together. On the same night, Jesus took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take and drink the cup together. Friends, the Apostle Paul says in scripture that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. We're heralding the good news of the gospel until he returns. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, junior lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.